Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, race and sports will examine progress and continuing systemic challenges on and away from the playing field. I'll be joined by veteran sports executive and former Atlanta Hawks general manager, Billy Knight. Also, former baseball player and development instructor, C.J. Stewart. Also, a conversation with U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, about the USDA's major initiatives for the year. And in just a moment, we'll hope to be joined by Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, about a couple of new plans his office wants to implement this election season. All that's coming up, but first this. Governor Brian Kemp says the state will spend $13 million on expanding access to opioid abuse prevention and treatment. The money comes from Georgia's settlement last year with McKinsey & Company over the consulting firm's role in helping opioid makers promote their drugs. Kemp's office says the money will fund medication-assisted treatment programs and campaigns to reduce stigma around opioid abuse. It will also expand training and increase supplies of the overdose reversal drug for EMS providers. In other news, Atlanta's Morehouse College is launching the largest fundraising campaign in the school's history. The historically black male institution hopes to raise $500 million in order to provide more financial support to students. President David Thomas made the announcement earlier today on campus. To guarantee that any man admitted to Morehouse, that financial affordability will never be the reason why he chooses not to come to Morehouse. Thomas says Morehouse already has raised $200 million. Money from the campaign will also fund research, campus improvements, and faculty recruitment. And we are expected to be joined by Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. We, he has joined us. That's great to hear because this week he endorsed the idea of a state agency outside of his office hiring election investigators. Now, state lawmakers are currently backing a plan from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation to hire agents devoted to election inquiries. This would supplement Raffensperger's own investigation unit, which he says in the presser was under, which he said in the presser is underfunded. I think we can all agree that the two elections investigators currently assigned to our office are not enough. Georgia has become the center of the election universe. And this year, we're going to have hard-fought campaigns that we're going to be watched all across the country. And every indication is that we are going to have close races. With that environment, it only makes sense to provide additional resources for election security so that everyone can have confidence in the results. Well, let's take a deeper dive into all of that because joining me now is Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. Mr. Secretary, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, good afternoon, Rose. 
Let's begin here. Let's allow the listeners to hear the motive behind your plans. First, let's talk more about the investigators that you all say you need to investigate, you know, election fraud inquiries and, and other and other concerns. Well, right now we have two post-certified investigators to handle election infractions to investigate uh, whatever could have happened during an election. But we also have another 20 post-certified investigators that are assigned to uh, cemeteries, you know, securities, uh, nursing uh, licenses, all the other licenses that we have. But we just shift them over to, to help because the two, obviously, you can't cover all the issues of 300 investigations that we had after the 2020 cycle. But that said, that is all after the election. What we were talking about in my press release was what do you do during the voting process when you have poll monitors, credential poll monitors are there, also election workers, to make sure we have a safe, orderly, uniform process. And I think we want to make sure and uh, elevate people's attention to the issues that we think we could see during the actual voting process. You mentioned, you said you were investigating 300 claims after 2020? Yeah, we had nearly 300, invest, we had opened up nearly 300 investigations after the 2020 cycle. And how many of those cases were legitimate in, ta- in terms of you actually found some type of nefarious activity or there was actually some evidence of voter fraud? Well, uh, there were, you know, they were typically cases. We had over 100 that have been brought before the state election board already. We had 50 that were still continuing that process of, uh, you know, following all the leads that we do have. But just let you need to be aware that none of that ever arose to a, a significant number to overturn the will of the people. President Trump did come up short. Oh, but sure. Yeah, we, we investigate yeah. everything. <laughs> yeah, we investigate everything. So we found there weren't 10,315 dead people. There were four. Is because Martha voted for Harry or Harry voted for Martha because mm-hmm. one of them had passed and those things like that. But uh, we investigate every single allegation of voter fraud. Do you anticipate that there could be some issues? And is this a, a sort of a, a, a measure that would prevent it? Or in case you do have some, some concerns, having, these, having additional investigators, even for the voting on voting day, that would help? Well, that's, that, yes, I think it does help. Because I think uh, we do have, we have thousands of precincts, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of issues that you can be looking at. It's, uh, you're going to be processing and tabulating the absentee ballots mm-hmm. at the county election offices. Well, I think there should be a security presence there, processing the absentee ballots. And so the sheriffs have done a tremendous job with the limited resources they have. But they're going to be looking at additional overtime costs, uh, maybe, I don't know, staffing issues, what they're going to look at. So they have additional costs. And I think the General Assembly needs to look at how do they help the county, help the county sheriff departments defray these costs that they're going to have. And they're going to have these, uh, we think, every two years based on what we've seen in 2018 and 2020. So I want to be clear so our listeners understand your, you, the investigators and then the state troopers, those are two separate plans, correct? Well, yes. Yeah, the, well, we talked about the troopers and the, and the sheriffs. The troopers would actually be under the uh, authority because state law says the sheriffs have the authority and anyone anyone in law enforcement that comes in there is under their authority. But we need more bodies. That'll be the issue and um, we'll have overtime. So the counties themselves will have additional costs, the sheriff's department, and we want to make sure that they're fully funded also. So you're asking Governor Kemp for state troopers to provide security for polling locations in addition for that would help the counties and the sheriff's yeah. departments, correct? Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm, and it, yeah, most, most, the smaller counties uh, probably could cover it with their own uh, deputies, but the larger counties, uh, our concern would be they just have a lot more issues, and that would be our uh, focus. But we want to make sure that we have a, a process. We talk about this, but also making sure that it's not just uh, a gold dome directive that's going to cost the sheriff's money, that they're going to be fully resourced so that they can handle the additional costs that they're going to have. There are, what, 2,500 polling locations, Mr. Secretary? Yeah, in rough numbers, 2,500. And how many state troopers do we have? Right now, about 1,000. And so it would be targeted, uh, obviously, to where they are. And uh, most of the sheriffs uh, can handle what they have already. They do a great job. And so it's not a a question about those counties. It's other counties that will need additional resources. But you're also talking back office support because you'll be doing tabulation uh, Mm -hmm. of the absentee ballots. And uh, that's a new area just because of what was put in place with Senate Bill 202, the Election Integrity Act of 2020. And and look, I don't think anyone would oppose to making sure that voters, poll workers and staff are not harassed by outside agitators. I think everyone agrees Mm -hmm. that you should be able to go through the voting process on, on that day, whether it's early voting or the day of. But can you understand, Mr. Secretary, given the history of law enforcement being used at polling locations and not in a good way, and especially here in the South, that that conjures up voter intimidation memories? Can you understand someone saying, well, that, do we need to have this, this be the method? Can you understand that? Well, I understand that concern, but also I do understand in 2020 in Bartow County, we had poll workers that harassed and they were followed home. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure that things like that don't happen. But we also want to make sure we have a transparent process that people know that if there are issues, that there uh, you know, will be people there to make sure that the process stays orderly and so that people can vote you know, in peace and exercise their free, free will choice for whoever their candidate is. Given what happened, obviously, last year, January 6th, given the fact that you yourself, you and your family and you and your, co- your co-workers you all received threats. Uh, you all had to, at some point, correct me if I'm wrong, you all had to leave uh, from downtown at, at state capitol or something. You, so you understand that. Is there not a, a different way then to make sure that folks understand that whether it's at the primary or election day, we are not going to tolerate folks harassing people, and that you, and, and that, but you need to have the state troopers there? Well, we need to have law enforcement there uh, to you know, set that guardrail that it will not be tolerated. Coercion uh, and any type of rowdy behavior is not going to be tolerated. Uh, we also want people uh, to feel comfortable and safe in the environment they're in. And this is for credential poll monitors. We're going to have additional credential poll monitors. That's also um, they're going to be trained with the poll worker uh, training process. But mm-hmm. we'll have that from both political parties. We just expect that it'll be a another contentious cycle. We have to be prepared for that because we had that in 2018. We've had it in 2020. And if we don't, uh, and we don't nip it in the bud, you know, while the election process is going on, then it just we want to make sure we, we really head that off at the past. Now, obviously, post-election, mm-hmm. you know, if uh, GVR brings additional resources for investigations, that's another matter. The horses are already out of the barn. Now you're going to do an investigation. What exactly happened? And that's very important to do. And like I said, we had 300 
upward of 300 cases at the 2020 cycle. But you but you also told me that you are still investigating that and you really only had four cases of maybe someone who was deceased and somehow got a vote in. So yeah. someone listening says, well, but that yeah. is that enough to justify having to bring the GBI into watching folks tabulate? I mean, even if you're a poll worker, that can well, be intimidating knowing that you got law enforcement looking at you and Look, we already uh, had folks yeah, GBI, who said they shredded yeah, documents think, unknowingly, but can you yeah. imagine folks being a little nervous with yeah. Yeah. a state trooper or yeah, an investigator? Go ahead. I don't envision GBI. G, GBI are investigators like ours are, and so that's really following a process after that. But the the deputies uh, and state troopers are out there really as a law enforcement, and, and that's you know while things are happening and really to stop things or also just to have that presence there. People understand, okay, we're not going to be able to do that here because, you know, you know, there's a sheriff that's watching the yeah, process. But if it's, but if it's not a problem, sure everyone handles but, but is it, I know you mentioned one of the counties out of 159. If let's say during the primary. Oh, others. Okay. Well, then you know what, when that happens, y'all need to tell folks like me in the media so we can alert folks. But here's the thing. If it's not, if let's say you go through the primaries and there's no incidents, do you still think you need to have state troopers in November? Well, I'm much more concerned actually about the November process, not the primary process. That's why I said, do you still think uh, you will need? Yeah. In November is when uh, that the stakes are elevated. Uh, According you know, to the, primary the stakes process, are elevated. Really, but Mr. Secretary, do in, you? Th- in, the, in, the, in the May process, it's really a food fight amongst ourselves in our, in our party and then the Democrat party. Uh, but it's really when you see in the November election, mm-hmm. that's when we had more I- issues in both 2018 and 2020. But can you give me an example other than, I mean, I know you mentioned and I, and we feel for those, you said folks followed some poll workers home, but are there any other incidents, any cases that you want listeners to know to justify why you want to have state troopers? Yeah. uh, Processing the tabulation of the absentee ballots Mm -hmm. at county election offices. So uh, you're going to have credential poll workers there. You're going to have additional people there. uh, And then, uh, there's just going to be uh, other potential stress points. And so it's knowing um, like uh, any uh, potential uh, intentional interference with the performance of anyone's election duties, mm-hmm. uh, people that interfering with uh, poll officers and, you know, anyone that, uh, you know, is working to obstruct a smooth and orderly process. But, but do you have you proof know, right that now, someone do, obstructed we, somebody's we, right, attempt to vote, though? Do you have proof of that from 2018 we, to 2020? We, we had a very contentious cycle, Rose, and we want to get ahead of that. We want to make sure that uh, we have an orderly process in all of the precincts. You're correct. It was a contentious cycle. But in terms of at the polling locations, were there incidents of folks... Were there, were there enough incidents that folks were being harassed, that people were being threatened, that you need to have state troopers at the polling locations? Well, we I understand make, about the entire cycle, which, yeah. let's be clear, well, you, you're gonna have, you're was, gonna have, was you're gonna because have, of Donald uh, Trump. You, and have, his, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, you're going to have deputies there. Uh, be it as it may, you, you want to make sure that every precinct is staffed uh, so that you know we have an orderly process. What are, what are that, the counties saying to you? Really what have the elections de- boards and counties, the election departments, are they in favor of having state troopers? Well, well, uh, 
the, the sheriffs have the authority right there. So any state troopers that would augment, you know, their forces would be underneath them. But we want to actually make sure that the deputy sheriffs understand that with this election cycle, that we ex- fully expect that the uh, we'll have some people pulling longer shifts and there will be additional cost. And we want to make sure that the General Assembly uh, considers that uh, as a supplemental cost mm-hmm. uh, as they're developing their budget. And I think that they need to lean into uh, the uh, information in the council that the uh, Georgia Sheriff's Association mm-hmm. could provide them. Mr. Secretary, in your book, Integrity Counts, as we begin to wrap up, mm-hmm. you make the correlation, the importance, this is made throughout your book, the importance of a fair elections process. Also, that includes the voters. Um, but if there are concerns about voter intimidation, even though it's not intentional, because you say you have law enforcement there as a resource to help to prevent, but sometimes the presence of law enforcement, when one would argue we probably shouldn't need to have it at a polling location, we shouldn't in 2022, but all this is because of Donald Trump, someone from your own Republican Party, is again, I want to be very clear and give you an opportunity. Do you think there is, there's not another way for you all to ensure security without having state troopers there, which you and I know, again, the history of law enforcement at polling locations here in the South with people of color and disenfranchised folks? You know that history. That can be triggering for some people. Well, we want to make sure that it's a pleasurable experience for everyone, that it's an orderly process, and that uh, people show up to vote, they control their emotions, that credential poll workers have a resource there so that there are any situations that they can resolve them uh, and we can resolve them at, on the spot as opposed to opening up an investigation post-election mm-hmm. when the horses are already out the barn. It's best to really deal with those at the front end of the election cycle as opposed to post-election. Have you prosecuted anybody yet that it was harassing folks these, these past two election cycles? Because where are they? Are uh, doing time? Well, that comes that, that comes before the state election board, and I don't share that anymore, Rose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know. I know. Let me ask you this before I let you go, because when will a chair be appointed to fill that vacant seat on the state election board? I don't know if that's something that is really a better question for Governor Kemp, but um, isn't a chair supposed to be appointed by a majority vote of the House and Senate? Um, that's the General Assembly and the governor handle that, so mm-hmm. you'd have to refer your questions over there. Are you going to ask them to nudge them a little bit and say, hey, I mean, you're the, you're, the, you're the state's top election official. We look for you to guide the whole state on this. Don't you think that that spot should be filled by now? Uh, General Assembly felt that uh, that uh, they could handle it, you know, with their chair. And so let them make their decision. All right. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Keep us posted, you know, when you do prosecute some Thanks, folks. Sir. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Bye-bye. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. More than a million Georgians have trouble accessing the food they need to live an active and healthy life. How do we know that? Well, that data comes from the Atlanta Community Food Bank, which reveals one in eight people in the state are food insecure. In the last year, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has made addressing the needs of food insecure communities a top priority. In fact, the agency says it's working to increase benefits to those in need and a focus on groups who have been left out. Tom Vilsack was confirmed as U.S. Secretary of Agriculture about a year ago. Now, it's a role we all know he previously held during the Obama administration. And earlier in the week, I had a conversation with Secretary Vilsack days before a scheduled trip to Dubai. You'll hear more about that in a moment. But we begin with the secretary talking about unfinished priorities from the Obama administration. Secretary Vilsack, thanks for taking the time and joining me again. I really appreciate it. It is great to be with you. There's lots to get to, but first, this being your second stint as secretary, uh, were there some unfinished initiatives you're now able to re-implement or maybe some that were dismissed under the Trump administration? If so, what are they? Well, there's a lot going on Mm -hmm. at USDA. Part of it, uh, I think, is focusing on um, continuing our effort to try to improve the, uh, the department in terms of equity. Uh, inclusion, diversity, and accessibility. Uh, we had work to do in the Obama administration. We began that work. Uh, the Trump administration uh, basically didn't continue that effort. Uh, we have resumed it uh, in a very aggressive way. Just recently announced the formation of an equity commission, uh, a group of very serious people who will take a very serious look uh, from the outside in about how we go about our business, uh, to identify barriers uh, to access of our services and programs uh, for underserved, historically underserved populations and communities, uh, make recommendations for how we can improve, and also how we can create a culture uh, that essentially ensures over time and in the future uh, that we are, in fact, the People's Department uh, accessible to all. And have you given this task force, this committee, a deadline in terms of reporting back to your department? How will this work? Well, it's going to, we're going to break it down, starting with co- uh, customer-facing uh, services that we provide, uh, starting with our farm service agency uh, and the programs that help our, and assist uh, producers. We know that there has been a history of discrimination with black farmers, with mm-hmm. Native American farmers, women, and Hispanic farmers. And so we're starting there. Uh, we uh, expect and anticipate that this uh, commission will make a series of interim reports and a set of recommendations. Uh, my hope and belief is that they will give us some serious recommendations here in the year uh, 2022 and that we'll begin implementation of those recommendations as quickly as possible. Uh, this commission basically is a two-year life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after we transition from the customer-facing uh, efforts, uh, we'll probably take a look at rural development research and some of the other mission areas of USDA. The USDA is tasked with overseeing and implementing various policies and programs. But since COVID-19 has impacted how we all live, your agency has had to shift and, and prioritize and maybe also implement some new initiatives. How is that going for you? Because we all still have to deal with this, this pandemic here. 
One of the things we noticed uh, coming into office was the fact that the pandemic assistance and help that the Trump administration had provided had been very limited uh, in terms of a very small uh, group of folks who benefited primarily from uh, the relief packages. And we made the decision in the Biden-Harris administration to broaden that, to take a look at ways in which we could help uh, folks that had not yet been helped. Let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. Farm workers and those who work in our uh, meat processing facilities uh, they obviously suffered through the pandemic as well. Uh, they incurred additional expense for protective equipment, and we created a, a grant program uh, that will reimburse them for some of the costs that they incurred during the pandemic to reflect the essential nature of the work that they do. Same thing would be true of grocery store workers as well. Uh, we looked at uh, especially crop producers who didn't necessarily get uh, a full amount of assistance and help. We looked at uh, other livestock producers uh, that may have not been helped as much as uh, we think they uh, they needed to be helped. So there was a pandemic assistance uh, effort. Uh, there's an effort that we are uh, undertaking to transform our food system uh, so that we create a local and regional food system that's a more resilient food system than the one we had pre-pandemic. Uh, we're obviously looking at climate change. That's a top priority for the Biden-Harris administration. We just announced a very large commitment to try to fund pilot programs that will help us learn how better to uh, incorporate climate smart agriculture and forestry um, in, into the countryside. So there's just a whole lot going on at USDA. Um, exciting to, to have this opportunity and, and uh, thrilled to be back. I want to get to we're going to get to climate change in just a moment before we let you go. But I want to go back to something that you've been focusing on, which is, of course, the equity piece and also with some major uh, initiatives coming out of the American Rescue Plan. Uh, what will the USDA, what will you all be focusing on as it does relate to making sure you can implement uh, the parts of that American Rescue Plan? Well, Rose, one of the first things we noticed uh and, and listening to folks who have expressed concerns about the way we uh, the way we deal with underserved populations is we don't provide the technical assistance and the help uh, to know what programs are available and to allow and guide them through these programs. Sometimes they can be complicated. Uh, and so what we've done is recently announced a series of grants for uh, expansion of technical assistance mm -hmm. uh, to historically underserved producers. Uh, we announced $75 million to 20 organizations across the United States. We're going to, uh, we're going to uh, announce an additional $75 million or so for an expansion of that outreach effort. Our, our National Resource Conservation Service announced a $50 million initiative, 118 organizations receiving assistance so that they can spread the word about conservation programs that currently exist that people need to take advantage of. Even our risk management, the folks who do the crop insurance program, have identified $2 million of additional outreach so that uh, they can begin to, to ensure that small and mid-sized producers understand how they can do a better job of managing the risk associated with agriculture. So there's a tremendous focus on outreach. There's also going to be a focus on expanded market access. We we procure, we purchase mm -hmm. a lot of food products, uh, and we're now directing hundreds of millions of dollars of those food purchasing dollars uh, to purchasing from local and regional uh, distributors and the hope that they can also uh, do business for uh, small, uh, uh, historically uh, uh, underserved producers. Uh, to be able to get uh, new market opportunities that, that haven't existed in the past. And we're also taking a look at the issue of land access. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a big issue. Uh, we uh, finalized the air property rule. We're providing a, a program to assist folks in consolidating the title of land that they, they may own so that they can better qualify for programs at USDA. So a lot of activity uh, in, this, in this space. And we're continuing to, uh, to fight 
uh, litigation. Uh, you know, as you know, the American Rescue Plan provided for a debt relief effort mm-hmm. um, that has been stalled in mm-hmm. uh, in the courts. Uh, but we're going to continue to work our way through uh, and hope that we ultimately get a favorable judgment or an act of Congress that gives us the capacity and power to proceed to um, to relieve the debt of many of these uh, producers. And Mr. Secretary, that seems to be so important right now, crucial, if you will, given what's happening with the supply chain that that we're all the backlog that everyone is experiencing here. Because if we're talking about, as we call, as we say, you know, homegrown or, or, or locally sourced here in this nation and even in Georgia, that is so important right now. Well, we learned during the pandemic that we have a very efficient food system, but one that's not particularly resilient, which is why we had shortages, why we're continually faced with the supply chain challenges you mentioned. So what we really need to do is to complement our production uh, system that's very efficient with a local and regional system that provides greater resiliency. Uh, that means basically uh, providing technical assistance and information about how small and mid-sized uh, uh, farms can access credit. It means uh, working to create market opportunities by using the federal procurement uh, power uh, to help do business with those farmers. It it, uh, is about creating farm to fill in the blank, farm to school, farm Mm -hmm. to restaurant, farm to grocery store, farm to institutional purchaser of food, creating that network uh, that will allow folks to have a meaningful market that they have more control over than having to compete in a commodity-based market that, frankly, uh, it it really plays to the strengths of large-scale agriculture. Uh, and so the, the goal here is to try to provide a complementary system. Mm-hmm. And frankly, the big challenge we have in rural places is that we've had an extraction economy. We take stuff off the land. Uh, we transport it someplace else. Wealth is created someplace else. Jobs are created someplace else. What we need to do is we need to create those opportunities and those jobs and that wealth uh, right near where the farms that are producing the natural resource um, that, that we're taking advantage of. And that's why the climate issue is so important. Mm-hmm. We give, uh, we're going to give farmers the ability to profit from the sequestering of carbon and the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions and a conversion of agricultural waste into a variety of, uh, of new products that creates new jobs, new opportunities, wealth creation opportunities, and new income opportunities for farmers. And that's more of a circular economy, if you will, um, that we think will address some of the, the, the challenges we have in rural places. In fact, I want to quote you here because you said, quote, for some time, rural America has been at the mercy of an extraction economy where resources are taken from rural lands only to create jobs and economic opportunity in urban and suburban areas. But I want to give you a chance to take that further because you can understand someone listening was saying, well, I understand this too. There are extractions, economy issues in urban areas, particularly when you look at a city like Atlanta, which depending on which zip code you live in, there is definitely an extraction economy because there is there's money that's made off, let's say, you know, low-income communities, but it doesn't go back into those communities. So you can understand someone understanding, someone saying, look, that's both ways here. Uh, no question about it. I'm not suggesting that, that sure. it doesn't occur in urban centers, but this is a natural resource issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you're talking about in urban centers is more of a human resource extraction, uh, I think. Uh, but what we're trying to do in rural places, which is the jurisdiction of the Department of Agriculture, uh, is to figure out ways in which we can create new wealth opportunities, new revenue streams, new job opportunities in these rural places. So, for example, the conversion of agricultural waste. We know that we can convert agricultural products into a variety of food and feed and fuel. But what about chemicals and materials, fabrics and fibers? A tremendous opportunity there. Uh, and it also will help us reduce the greenhouse gas 
footprint of agriculture to the point where it gets to the president's vision of a net zero uh, emitting agriculture by the year 2050. Mm -hmm. We know that we can convert agricultural waste into a new fuel. Uh, Atlanta is a hub uh, for, uh, for, for the airline industry. They want an aviation fuel that is cleaner burning, mm -hmm. that is lower in terms of carbon uh, output. Well, we in agriculture can provide that. Rural America can provide that. So that means that you take agricultural waste off the farm. The farmer gets paid for that. You truck it down to a processing facility not too far from the farm. Mm -hmm. That creates jobs. And you create a new aviation fuel that in turn allows uh, the airlines in Atlanta and elsewhere to reduce their greenhouse gas uh, footprint. That is the kind of circular economy mm -hmm. that I think we need to be creating in rural places. And I think that the model works well. Uh, in other areas as well, once you analyze the problem that way. As we begin to wrap up, Mr. Secretary, are you still scheduled to leave for Dubai? Because uh, this trade mission, as you will, will have a focus on the U.S. commitment, as you put it, to working with international partners to combat climate change. Are you still scheduled for this trip? Reality is uh, we can't do this alone. Uh, we have to learn from the rest of the world, and the rest of the world has to learn from us. And I hope that the U.S., is allowed to place itself in a leadership position in terms of climate-smart agriculture and forestry. I think there's a lot that we can provide the rest of the world, and I think there's a lot we can learn. Uh, and that's the purpose of, of, of this visit. And finally, the last time we spoke here in our studio, we focused on the opioid crisis in this country. I want to give you time now to assess how the United States has progressed and what still needs to happen in through your lens in terms of making sure we can combat this not only just from a treatment standpoint, but any other optics related to this nation's opioid crisis? Well, I think there's a greater recognition than the last time we talked about it. I think there are more resources that are going to be directed towards it as a result of settlements and so forth. But I think we still have a, a significant challenge. And part of the challenge, particularly in rural places, is creating an atmosphere in which it's okay to acknowledge that there's a problem. Uh, sometimes I think we have a tendency to think of uh, opioid addiction and addictions generally as being a character flaw mm -hmm. as opposed to a disease, as opposed to an illness, if you, uh, uh, if you will. Uh, if you look at it that way, then it's no different than cancer. It's no different than heart disease. It's no different than any other disease that we're concerned about. And I think we need to bring this out in the open. I think we need to, we need to uh, demystify all of this and make sure that people understand that you need to create systems and support help uh, in, in rural places. You need not only do you need clinics, but you also need the community to be engaged in saying it's okay to acknowledge that you've got a problem. We're here to help. Uh, and hopefully we have the resources in our healthcare system and our mental health system to basically provide those uh, the, that assistance. U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack. Mr. Secretary, as always, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for returning to the program. You bet, Rose. And Closer Look will continue in just a moment where we'll, where we'll examine, examine progress and continuing systemic changes when it comes to systemic challenges when it comes to race at the intersection of sports. I'll speak with former Atlanta Hawks general manager, veteran sports executive Billy Knight, and former baseball player and a development instructor in his own right, C.J. Stewart. All that's coming up. But first... This, in an emotional hearing at the state capitol, dozens of people spoke out on a bill that would overhaul Georgia's mental health system. As Susanna Capilouto reports, one family story Wednesday showed why parity in insurance is a major element of the bill. As one of the authors of the major mental health overhaul in Georgia, Representative Todd Jones welcomed the people in a packed committee room. We're going to probably hear a lot of testimony, both from people who have experienced Georgia's system, um, and I and I almost feel as if 
Well, my family and I have experienced this personally. Many of you know the oldest of my four children, Justin. Jones got emotional thinking about his fight to get treatment for his son, who suffers from schizoaffective disorder. At one time, he said a counselor had this advice. We were told, and I quote, have him commit a felony. Implying that being in the prison system would be the best option to get the needed treatment in Georgia. It's one reason the state ranks 50th for access to mental health care. Jones' wife, Tracy, recounted her family journey during the hearing. She remembered being told of her son's illness. A diagnosis that was accompanied by the words, I'm truly sorry, from the psychiatrist. Um, After a difficult, we had a really difficult hospital admission with him and he didn't recognize me. For the next several years, there were multiple inpatient and outpatient hospital stays and fights with insurance companies. She said they would not easily accept his diagnosis, but would call it drug-induced psychosis. I explained to them that he's been sober for over a year, so this cannot be drug-induced psychosis. It is not that. An accurate diagnosis stemmed from the same barrier, insurer profitability. For an insurer, a diagnosis of drug-induced psychosis is significantly less expensive than a diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder. This is just one issue the massive mental health bill is trying to fix. Insurance parity so that mental illness is treated equally to other ailments. Tracy Jones says she is hopeful this bill will pass so other families will not have to fight as hard for proper care for their loved ones. Susanna Capoluto, WABE News. And speaking of health and wellness today, Georgia U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock introduced legislation to cap the cost of insulin at $35 a month for diabetes patients. Now, Warnock says the cost of the drug has risen dramatically in recent years. Simply, this will reduce out-of-pocket costs for many insulin products and provide savings to millions of insulin users. I live in the state of Georgia. I'm a pastor. I'm on the ground. And so I know that everybody knows somebody with diabetes. If you don't have diabetes, you know somebody with diabetes. And lowering the cost of insulin is something that I am constantly hearing about. Warnock went on to cite one estimate that said some Americans pay nearly $6,000 a year for insulin. And according to the American Diabetes Association, about 12% of Georgia's adult population has been diagnosed with the disease. We're back in a moment. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Had this year, has this year's Winter Olympics? Well, they're about to wind down. And at the time of this broadcast, the United States has about 21 total medals. And that includes a gold in the 500-meter speed skating event. It's going to be really quick. Is it quick enough? Yes, it is. 37-04. She's the new leader with one pair to go. It's going to be tied on the outside. I think Jackson's got the gold medal. Fat Kalina, but it's Aaron Jackson's gold medal. Aaron Jackson, the U.S. had not won gold in this event since, in any competition, since 1994. And another achievement, 29-year-old Aaron Jackson is the first black woman to win the gold for Team USA 
in speed skating. Now, we know the Olympic Games date back to 1896, in case you're ever on Jeopardy, debuting, of course, in Athens, Greece. Now, it took till 1908 when John Baxter Taylor, who was a University of Penn college athlete, was part of the men's then 1,600-meter relay team that won gold in London. And we know there have been a lot of firsts within amateur and professional sports as it relates to breaking color barriers or by achievement. Yet, in 2022, racial and gender equity are still major issues. As we conclude Closer Look's week-long Black History programming, in case you didn't notice that, we're now going to examine the intersection of race and sports. Let's welcome in some very familiar guests you should know. First up, C.J. Stewart. I don't know if he can still hit the fastball or not. We'll have to see. Former professional baseball player, CEO of Diamond Directors Player Development, and along with his wife, Kelly, run the lead ambassadors program that works with APS Youth and Billy Knight, veteran sports executive and consultant, as well as former general manager of the Atlanta Hawks. And this is not, it was not Billy Knight's fault that they traded Dominique. Let me get that out the way right now before y'all start saying, oh, okay, welcome to you both. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Thank you very much for having us. All right. Uh, Billy, let me get with you. You, You're a veteran executive in sports. When When we talk about equity in the front office of sports leagues, we've come a long way. Some would say, but there's still a lot to do. What are the barriers when we talk about <laughs> equity in the front office of sports leagues? Through your lens, what are well, they? well, there's there's so many barriers. It's hard to to even um, list them all. But you know, one one main barrier that um, that play that I like to think of former players, former guys that have been involved in the sport. Mm-hmm having the the first dibs or an opportunity to get involved in in that sport because obviously they have a vast amount of knowledge that can't be replaced in that business um so i like to think of those guys being at the forefront of opportunities to go to work in the front office i was fortunate that i i was able to do that through the indiana pacers startup Mm -hmm. but because of a a president of that organization knew me from my playing days and allowed me the opportunity to get started in the front office. So it it almost takes, you know, a a good reputation and all of the things that that, that go with representing an organization, but it also takes someone having faith or confidence in you and and the belief that, that you would be a good fit in this particular situation. And like I said, I was fortunate that Donnie Walsh with the Pacers gave me that opportunity to start my career in the front office. But that's almost what it's going to take. It's like I said, you got to you got to get kept your nose clean and, and done things the right way. But you also have to be given an opportunity. And, and that's that's not easy to come by um, in the world of pro sports because it's such a lucrative position. Mm-hmm. And at least from my way of thinking, it was such a a cush job because you're not on the court playing anymore. That was hard. That was well, let me ask you this, Billy. Let me ask you this, Billy. Did you feel like there was a certain set of standards or expectations for you as a black man that perhaps your white counterpart that, that there was an expectation of, did you feel that? Did folks tell you that? Did you hear that? Um, when I started working in the organization, I didn't hear that. You, you, you wouldn't hear that as a startup. You would hear that when you get, closer to realizing your dream of being a general manager you you'd hear that 
well, you know, somebody might not be working hard in another position. Mm -hmm. Somebody of color might not be spending the time they need. So invariably that would put it in your mind that you've got to work harder. You've got to do more to, to, to justify your situation. That's, that's what it does. It, it implants certain thoughts in your mind when you, when you hear that for you or for anybody else, that mm-hmm. it just makes you put your nose to the grindstone even harder because you, you're going to, you're going to hear in, in the world of pro sports, you're going to hear comments one way or the other every day, every oh, day. Okay. You're going to hear that. It comes right. with it. And it's going to come with pro sports. And I know some folks probably listening are like, what? They're shocked to hear that. But let me bring in CJ Stewart. CJ, I want to ask you this. Did you see, did you have many black coaches, managers, whether it was in the minors and or even in the Cubs program? You know, we uh, we didn't. But I tell you, the, the ones that we, the African-American uh, coaches that we had were very instrumental to me because uh, having someone that can uh, relate to you uh, and being African-American is not monolithic, but um you know, it's, it's, it's a great starting point. We did have a lot of um, uh, Latino coaches, uh, and then uh, we had a lot of uh, white coaches as well. And so I think that was a part of my struggle um, is I feel like I did not receive the benefit of the doubt, uh, respect, and trust. Uh, I had to work really hard to, to earn that uh, versus some of my uh, my teammates that were white, they started from the jump with the benefit of the doubt, respect, and trust. So, Billy, what year was that that Donnie Wash with the Pacers? What what year was that that you got that that front office position? Oh, it was back in the late eighties. Late eighties. Now in twenty twenty. Late eighties when I started. Yep. And you look around the league now. There, there obviously, there's been some progress. And talking about the NBA. But in all, let's now look at all the professional sports, and, and we don't have enough time to talk about the issues with the NFL right now. But at all the sports, no, we don't. No, we don't. <laughs> and even and even even in associations, are, are what is the problem? Is it about access leading to opportunity and then advancement that they don't these leagues these friend these leagues sports leagues don't understand the importance of that pathway? Because that's what you talked about: access, opportunity, right. and then right. advancement. Three key. Mm-hmm. Metrics, which seem like each each league should have some type of program for this, but we're not seeing that. Or mm-hmm. they say they have it, and we're not seeing it result in front office positions and head coaching jobs, and, and that. I know, I know the NBA, and obviously that's that's what what I know best. The NBA has has done better than most, but mm-hmm. like the commissioner Adam Silver has said himself numerous times, and Adam Silver's a good man. He's from his position, he's going to do everything he can. But like Adam Silver said, we still can get better. We can do better. I mean, the the NBA has um, double-digit black coaches right now. Mm-hmm. But they also have uh, eight out of ten players in the NBA are black. So they can do better. I mean, they, they've done okay. They're, they're doing better than most. But they still have to improve it and, and get, get better at doing this because there's so many people that are knowledgeable, experienced, and available and ready to do it, that that they can take advantage of that. They And these players need that. The players mm-hmm. in the league will embrace something like that, having someone like them coaching them and telling them 
things that they feel will be good for them. Well, that's what I think, CJ. I think that's all very positive. Yeah, that's so. what CJ just said. Well, CJ, just look, look at baseball right now through your lens, and and we we're when you see the managers of color, and we're including Latino and Hispanic as well, but in terms of black managers, but also CJ, there's another racial equity problem with baseball, and that is black players. Yeah, well, you know, the thing that's most frustrating to me um, is that when you look at um, baseball, we, you know, first of all, it's, it's kind of thrown as um, all other sports with all due respect to football and, and basketball uh, in the black community where I serve in the inner city of Atlanta. It's kind of one of those things where it's like you're, you're only black if you're playing football and uh, and basketball and, and you're white if you're playing baseball. Well, you know, the NFL is celebrating um and I think even the NBA celebrated 75 years. Well, the Braves are celebrating 150 years of existence last year. And when you think about the Negro Leagues, uh, the Negro Leagues introduced baseball, professional baseball to Japan. Mm-hmm. The Negro Leagues introduced professional baseball to Canada and Latin America. And for all intents and purposes, uh, the Negro Leagues saved Major League Baseball uh, mm-hmm. with the integration. Uh, so uh, baseball has been a part of Black culture um, for a long, long time. And I feel like we suffer when it's when it's no longer uh, a part of our culture. But the, the, the issue with baseball is change cannot happen until we start with conviction. And so we start talking about race within the baseball um, world, the baseball system, uh, it, it immediately goes to a place of guilt and then people you know, just get paralyzed and wanna do anything. Well, we got to get convicted, and that leads to a connection, and then that leads to a consensus, and then we can start to collaborate and experience change. Um, but again, like I said, from a, it's just very frustrating that, and I'll just say, even to the point here in Atlanta, uh, before the Atlanta Black, Black Crackers took on the name of Black Crackers, it was the Atlanta Cubs. It was a semi-professional baseball team. And these men were getting paid $300 a month, making them some of the highest paid African-Americans um, in our society here in Atlanta. And so, uh, you know, baseball is a powerful tool uh, and quite frankly was used as a rite of passage for mm-hmm. for black boys to become black men. I, I, I want to make sure we get to this before we say in this conversation, I wish we had more time, but something else that we saw, especially in 2020, athletes, and social justice activism, obviously the impact of the George Floyd murder. And Billy, I'll start with you with all your years. And we've heard people say, oh, athletes should not be involved in social justice movements. And you have some folks now say, well, yeah, they need to because they can help bring folks together. How do you see this and where we are now with athletes and social justice issues? Well, I, I think the social network has been the, the, the biggest uh, influence on the world uh, today. I mean, and, and it's great that athletes are involved in the, in the social network and in social justice because it's a part of society. Mm-hmm. Athletes, are, they're great athletes at whatever they do, whether it's football, baseball, basketball, hockey, track, I mean, whatever it might be, they're great athletes, but they also are still the human beings that, that inhabit the city and the world. So they're, they're entitled to have their opinions and, and the social network that young people utilize to the utmost degree these days. I think it has been great. As a matter of fact, I think that's the reason that the NCAA changed their ruling on on uh, paying players yeah. for using their, their likenesses mm-hmm. because of the social network. Because all the college kids around the country and even around the world, you know, 
they put in their two cents on the social network. Mm-hmm. And that helps influence things. That that can have a big influence on people. So I'm, I'm all for it. And I think, these, you know, you're looking up to these guys. You know, people look up to, to, to athletes in, in every aspect. Young people are always wanting to emulate them and, mm-hmm. and be like them. So having a, a voice and a platform in social in the social network is a, is a big, powerful tool that, that everyone should use. And, you, and, and that includes being an athlete. Absolutely. And CJ, this is something that you and your wife, Kelly, with your lead ambassadors program, you use sports, baseball particularly, to work through these athletes and also being stewards of the, for the communities from which they come from. Yeah, absolutely. So for our lead center for youth, we use baseball as a vehicle to help 250 black boys from Atlanta public schools overcome crime, poverty, and racism. And, you know, for me with my, my life purpose, um, you know, finding my life purpose has come through sports. I mean, sports has really um, um, exposed my character, some of my weak points, some of my strong points. Uh, but the thing that has really allowed me to come alive uh, mm-hmm. and, and enjoy living and serving others is being passionate. And so uh, the Latin word for passion is suffering. So whatever you're suffering from is what you're passionate about. Uh, there's no other way uh, to to describe it. So we start thinking about the work that we're doing, mm-hmm. teaching kids how to play baseball. That part's going to be really, really easy. But helping them understand how Henry Aaron used the sport of baseball uh, to unite the city of Atlanta and help us to become a world-class city is very important to me. Absolutely. C.J. Stewart, former professional baseball player, CEO of Diamond Directors Player Development, and also along with his wife, Kelly, run the lead ambassadors program. Also, Billy Knight, veteran sports executive and consultant, also former general manager of the Atlanta Hawks. Thank you so much for taking time, being part of this conversation. Good conversation. I'm going to bring y'all back because I'm going to bring back some women and we can talk about you know gender equity in sports, too. It's, it's about time. It's about time. The, the men have been coaching women's basketball for years. It's about time they have some women coaching some men's basketball. There you go. That's I, good. I hear you, That's Billy. good. Thank you, fellas. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer, Sam Whitehead, along with Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, our producers, and our engineers, Kevin Rinker. You can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 if you missed any part of this pod- it broadcast, and we also have a podcast. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE Politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE Politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.